Hello and welcome to the podcast, Love, Life and Loss. This week you hear Erica's story. Erica lost her baby 40 years ago today, the 29th of May. Baby Shane sadly passed away. Listen as Erica takes us on her journey of the last 40 years and what that looks like for her. Erica is a mum of four and a grandmother. Listen as she talks about babyless from both perspectives in the next two episodes. Erica is also an experienced counsellor and a long-time advocate for baby loss awareness and support. She has worked for a number of charities, including SANS, helping support bereaved families. Erica has worked with the writers of EastEnders and Coronation Street on their storylines around baby loss, as well as supporting a number of authors with their books. Erica has contributed so much to our community. I am in awe of her. I feel very lucky to have met her and she has inspired me so much and I imagine anyone who meets her. Now I am sharing her story with you. So please join us. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Love, Life and Loss. Thank you so much for joining us today, Erica. So I'd just like to give you the platform to introduce yourself and let us know a bit about you and what you do. Hello, it's lovely to meet you, Louisa. Um, Yeah, my my name's Erica Stewart and I'm firstly Baby Shane's mummy. And um, I'll say a little bit more about Baby Shane. Um, And I work for three charities. Uh, One of the charities is Aching Arms. And I work on their support line, offering support via the phone, text and email. Uh, The other charity is another charity is Teddy's Wish. um, And they offer free counselling to bereaved parents. And I'm one of the counsellors there um, after their baby has died, uh, been stillborn or died shortly after birth or of SIDS. And then I work for another charity called Slow, which is Surviving the Loss of Our World. And I run two support meetings a week and uh, we support parents whose child has died at any age from any cause. So that could be an adult child as well. Wow. And um, and I also have my own private practice and um, and and have a few clients there. So I, I, my focus is bereavement. It's something I'm really passionate about, but I do have private clients that bring other other um perhaps mental health issues if you like um okay. um so the how i got into all this it probably be a good place to start is that um in 1983 um i had a baby boy we knew he had a heart problem because i'd had a daughter 2 years before who had a heart problem called cartation of the aorta which is a narrowing of the main tube coming from the heart and um, her, um, my daughter's um, heart issue was was uh, operated on and it was successful. And um, it was touch and go. We were called in a couple of times to say that, you know, things were kind of, you know, she might die. Um, but she was she was OK. And we brought her home. So two years later, I got pregnant with baby Shane. And having known about my daughter, um, they checked the baby's heart and they said that he's got co-optation of the aorta, but it's nothing, you know, we can we can sort it out. So I was quite, I suppose we were quite sort of not complacent, but we were quite, we had faith that, you know, okay, you know, we've got to go through this again, but, you know, it will be okay. 
So um, he was born and um, they they checked his heart and, and confirmed that he had cartation and they operated on, on him when he was about two days old. And um, he he was in, in intensive care and um, he was we were visiting him every day. And uh, and this was in 1983. So, you know, the kind of um, the, it wasn't poor care, but the guidance that parents were given, you know, they weren't exactly very open with us about what was going on. And, you know, so we had. Yeah. And we had hope, you know, that things were going to be OK. And um, and we were called in a couple of times to say, you know, we think you better come up. And, you know, he he was on the ventilator and they kept trying to turn the vent, wean him off the ventilator. They kept trying to turn it down and then he, they'd turn it up again because he wasn't coping. And, um, you know, I remember the doctor saying, the surgeon saying um, before his operation, you know, I said, oh, you know, he will be OK, won't he? It was a different surgeon to the one my daughter had. And he said, yes. And I, I always remember him saying, yes, but you must understand that I'm operating on something. And he held his pen nib up and he said, I'm I'm operating on veins that are smaller than my pen nib. And I looked at his pen nib and I could hardly see it. So it was kind of, you know, very intricate operation. And that kind of always stuck with me. I was kind of like, oh, gosh, you know, that's, you know, really difficult. Um, but, yeah, so we kept going up to see him because um, I had two girls at home. So we, you know, used to go and visit him and, and stay with him for lengths of time and come home. And then um, we knew that it was kind of one day that he was, you know, I used to phone the hospital and I used to speak to this nurse. and I used to say, oh, how is he today? And she'd say, yeah, well, he's still not, you know, he's he's doing OK. He's stable. And I always used to think that stable meant that he was OK. You know what I mean? You had that hope. You never knew what, what what kind of level of stable it was. And then, um, but there was this one nurse that used to say, yeah, he's doing okay, but you know, he's very poorly. And I used to think, I used to get a bit annoyed with her and think, oh, you know, don't say that, but is he all right? You know, yeah, he's still there. Anyway, um, and then one morning, one Sunday morning on the 29th of May, I remember that I was sleeping downstairs and we didn't have mobile phones then. So I had the telephone on the floor, you know, the old telephones and um, got this call about half past nine in the morning. And um, this nurse said, you know, come, I think you better come and give him a cuddle. And I, I said, come and give him a cuddle. And I knew in her voice, but she didn't say, you know, come and give him a cuddle or, you know, he's dying or there was no mention of death or anything. And I remember shouting up to my, you know, his dad, um, come on, we need to go. We need to go. And we must have known that he, that you know, that he, he'd he been kind of declining because the girls weren't at home. I think they were at my mum's. So, and I remember shouting upstairs, come on, we need to go. We've got to go. We've got to go and give him a cuddle, you know. And we got in the car, <clears throat> got to the hospital and, um, and there was baby Shane and his heart rate was going down, <clears throat> but there was no guidance, nothing to say, you know, um, would you like to, you know, hold him when he, you know, in your arms when he dies or, or whatever. And we just, I remember us just sitting there in the ward um, with other babies around and we were just, he was still connected to the tubes and we were just passing him backwards and forwards to each other and kind of looking at the clock and, you know, no one was giving us any guidance or saying anything about death or anything. So, and it, and we looked at the clock and it was about 12 o'clock 
or half past 12 and we said oh we're, we're gonna go and have a cup of tea now and uh they said yeah okay and we said we'll be back at one o'clock and um and then when we so we went off and on the way out we saw the surgeon and um we could see his heart rate was going down while we in that during that morning um but then it kept going up and it then it was going down and you know we were kind of oh look it's going up a bit but nobody was saying you know that he's declining so at that point, Erica, did so you didn't you didn't actually know that he was likely to pass away? We we didn't. No, not no, we didn't really. Nobody mentioned death or dying or would you like to hold him or nobody kind of said, you know, look, we're gonna remove the ventilator and things and would you like to hold him or you know, while he has his last last breath. No, there was there was no guidance and, and we didn't know because we had no point of reference, you know. Yeah. Why would we have? So we went That's down about won't it as well. Sorry? That would be the last thing that you think about. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, we just didn't know when we knew something but we didn't know, you know, when or anything. So off we went for our cup of tea and met the surgeon on the on the way out uh, or the consultant it was, Professor Tynan it was. And he said, "Oh, you know, we've done everything we can for baby Shane. His his co-optation was a lot worse, more complex than your daughter's because um, my daughter's cartation, her aorta was nipped in one place, whereas baby Shane's aorta was the whole aorta was narrow. So it was hard for them to patch the, the whole thing up. And we said, yeah, no, we understand. And, you know, off we went um, to, for this cup of tea. And then I remember we came back at uh, quarter past one and baby Shane had died at 10 past one. And I, I remember walking into the... Um, walking into the ward and we had to put gowns on you know the, the gowns that you have to put on and we had to wash our hands and everything and we were so used to you go going in putting the gown on washing our hands and and I remember his dad putting the gown on and us looking in the room you know through the through the window and um and baby Shane was kind of just lying there without the equipment on and um and I looked at I looked at his dad and I just ripped that he ripped his gown off and put it on myself and obviously not needing it now but I'm rushing into the room and um and they said and I remember just picking him up and crying these silent tears and they said that he died at 10 past one and I never knew if they switched the machine off or what you know I, and I didn't have the presence of mind to ask do you know what I mean we was just in such shock and all I can think all I could think of was that he we were said we'd be back at one o'clock he died at 10 past and we came back at quarter past so in my mind he'd waited for 10 minutes oh. do you know what I mean that's how you know that's what I remember and I remember picking him up and crying these you know just picking him up and he still had the ventilator sort of attached but not to the machines and just picking him up and crying these silent tears and um just holding him and then I gave him to his dad and he sat down and he wailed and rocked backwards and forwards. And, you know, I can see him now just, and I remember looking at him thinking, gosh, I should be doing that. Do you know what I mean? You'd like just kind of, wow, it was all just so unreal. And, um, you know, we didn't, you know, it was kind of like what happens next? And then they took the the ventilator attachment off his face and, um and then I, a voice said to me, um, would you like to bath him? And I and I remember thinking, why does he need a bath? He's dead. Do you know what I mean? I, you know, 
nowadays it's presented in such a different way, you know, because I've been involved in when I used to work at Sands. I worked at Sands, stillbirth and neonatal death charities for 25 years. And um, and we I used to uh, deliver training for improving care. And and now that kind of thing would be presented so differently. You know, it would be like, well, some parents find it helpful to bath their baby. You know what I mean? And it sort of normalizes it. Do you know what I mean? But at that time, it was kind of, I was thinking, why does he need a bath? You know, anyway, before I knew it, they'd bought a bath with this water in and um, this nurse, you know, proceeded to, neonatal nurse proceeded to, to bath him. And we were just, you know, I, was, I remember just sitting there in shock, just watching it all happen. And then they took him away and uh, dressed him and he came back in this kind of paper gown. You know, that in those days you didn't have clothes and they didn't know about making memories and offering to, for you to dress them. And he came back in this paper gown with kind of ruffles, you know, down the front of it. And his hands were sort of tied together with this lily placed in his hands, you know. And at first I, I thought, oh, that's quite sweet. You know, it's got this lily um, but looking back on it, it was quite sort of, you know, quite sort of cold, really. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it was all rushed. Do you know what I mean? It was like now parents would be given time to spend with their baby and not rushed. And some hospitals even have bereavement rooms, you know, where parents can bath and or make decisions, you know, in their own time. So, um, yeah, so they brought him in in this perspex cot and... Um, and we were just with this, you know, in, in in this paper long white gown, and um, and and this lily, and you know, his hands all tied. And I could I remember looking at his hands that had been, you know, had tubes and, and needles in, and all his little hands were all bruised and everything. And um, I remember look, seeing that, you know, and uh, and looking at him. And then they wheeled the um, cot into this disused office. And this is at Guy's Hospital on like the 16th floor or something. And it, 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 in this office had like all tables and chairs and we were sort of wheeled into the room. And I remember just standing there, we were sort of looking out of the window and then looking at him and thinking, well, what, what do we do? What do we do? You know, we didn't know what to do. And it's almost like, you know, we felt that he didn't belong to us. You know what I mean? Is it all right to pick him up? No one, no guidance. And um, again, and then somebody came in and said, um, a porter will take him to the mortuary. And I and I remember just kicking in and going, no, I'll take him to the mortuary. You know what I mean? I remember so much saying that. And um, I went, no, I'll take him. You know what I mean? It was kind of like, and what I realised now, it was everything was out of control. And suddenly I wanted to take control. No, I'll take him. Yeah. And um, so I remember, I think they, they wrapped him up and, and I held him in my arms and they took us down, you know, in um, to the mortuary through the back way of the, where you can be see the public. Do you know what I mean? And it was all this dark and gloomy way and you go down and it really was the mortuary, you know what I mean? It was all dark and gloomy. And then, um, yeah, so we, we left him in the mortuary and um, I remember leaving the hospital, I remember it so clearly, it was a sunny Sunday afternoon on May the 29th and the sun was shining. And I remember thinking, why is the sun shining? You know what I mean? It's, it wasn't congruent with how we, you know, why is that person talking? Why is that taxi driver? You know, the world was carrying on. Why are you laughing? You know what I mean? Our world had had had, had ended and, and stood still. 
and and yet the world was carrying on and i know that over the years all the parents i've supported have all said the same thing you know the world just carries on and it feels cruel you know and the sun was shining i think we think we must have got a taxi home i can't i can't quite remember and then um and then i remember going to um our my mother-in-law's house and um she she hadn't known that we'd gone to the hospital that morning because it was all quite a rush and uh, she'd cooked us a Sunday dinner. And I remember her saying, and we, we, we knocked on the door and went in. And um, I think my husband might have said, um, you know, baby Shane has just died. Obviously, she knew he'd been in hospital. And I remember her just kind of lifting her glasses and wiping an invisible tear away from her eye and then putting her glasses down. And then she said, your dinners are in the oven. Do you know what I mean? Sunday dinner. And, I, and then and then I remember eating my and then my my husband said no 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 I'm I'm not hungry and um but and I but I was and I used to love her food so I ate this Sunday dinner and I remember th- again thinking afterwards I felt so guilty I, th- I remember enjoying this dinner and thinking I shouldn't have eaten it I shouldn't have, I shouldn't be hungry my baby's just died I you know what I mean I shouldn't be hungry I should be like his dad you know so I remember that very clearly. And then um, the next, my next kind of memory with all that is that we decided to bring him home. We wanted to bring him home, but, you know, and it, it, you know, leaving hospital without your baby is one of the hardest things yeah. you'll ever do. And, um, and I remember, I can't remember how it came about. I think it was his dad's idea it said, you know, let's see if we can bring him home. And we could. There's no legal reason why you can't bring your baby home, and uh, <clears throat> and so we did. And I, um, um, his dad's brother um, worked in the cemetery. He was a, a grave digger, and um, and he made the he made a lovely coffin out of um, out of pine wood, just a basic coffin, you know. And um, and so we phoned up the hospital, and we were allowed to go and get him. And this is about two days later. There was, you know. So uh, we went and got him, and I remember coming back in the car, sitting in the back with him. You know, in he was in the coffin, and you had to have a piece of paper in case you got pulled by the police or whatever, or if you were in an accident to say that the baby, you know, the baby had already died and things. And um, yeah, and we brought him home, and he met his. You know, I took him upstairs, and he met me. He met his sisters and other members of the family. You know, a few close members of the family, and um, and I remember you know putting him in this lovely um cradle rocking cradle and um i can remember you know he he met his sisters and things and we had him there for a couple of days until the funeral and um i can remember like picking him up and putting him down and changing his nappy and reading him stories i read him a story um, a mr you know the mr men stories i read him i read him um it was just you know like i say it's just this just came natural to me i didn't know what else to do it was my way of i realize now it's my way of nurturing him and i made it i read him mr funny and i can remember <clears throat> sitting there reading to him on my own and going mr funny did this and i remember there was another part of me thinking if anybody could see me they'd think i was absolutely mad Anyway, Mr. Funny did this and Mr. Funny did that. And you know what I mean? And baby Shane's there. <clears throat> and um, yeah, and yeah, it was just, it was unreal. And I remember at one point as well, you know, picking him up in the evening while, while he was at home 
and going downstairs and um, taking him out into the street to show him the sky and things. I remember his dad saying, Erica, what are you doing? You know what I mean? And I was saying, I'm just showing him the sky. And you know what I mean? And it was all like just really sort of unreal, really, you know. And um, yeah, and I, I did that. And then on the day of his funeral, I can remember, you know, we had the coffin there and um, I can remember looking at him and as we were putting him in his coffin, it was unreal. You know, I'm putting my baby in a, my dead baby in a coffin, you know. And when I look back now, I just think, gosh, how did we do that? How did we kind of just, how did I let go, you know? And I realised, you know, there's just some, there was something in me that just knew it was time, you know. Obviously, after a couple of days, his appearance had changed and was changing. And um, so we, we put him in the coffin and, you know, Louisa, I remember looking at him and thinking, wow, there was an element of peace. Although there was such heartbreak and sadness, there was this element of peace. And I remember looking at him and thinking, gosh, you know, I'm not scared of death anymore. You know, he just looked so peaceful. And I just thought, you know, like if he could do it, I could do it. And I don't mean take my life or anything, but I just remember not being scared. Yeah. And we screwed the coffin down and we did the funeral ourselves. We we read poems and I we led the funeral and we had mu our own music and you know we just did our best really and I think um, the last the last song was My Sweet Lord by George Harrison uh, we played and um, yeah we just had a few people a few family members I asked everybody to wear white when I I wore white as well and. Um, I remember one of my friends, she came and she didn't have anything white. So she wore baby blue for a boy, which was oh, quite sweet. Yeah. And um, we had for Zion, actually, baby blue. That's what we wore. Yeah. 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 It's like, it's just, you just, like I say, you've got no point of reference. And um, yeah, we just did the funeral all ourselves. And I remember thinking when we got into the cemetery, you know, and I had to go out go over to the reception or whatever. I remember getting out of the car in my white dress and I had these white little, you know, artificial snowdrop flowers in my hair. And um, and I remember thinking, gosh, you, you know, being the observer of myself, thinking, God, you look so together. Do you know what I mean? Like I was all together. Yeah, let's do this, you know. But really, you know, I don't know how I was holding it together. But yeah. And then um, we had the funeral and then we had him cremated. And... Um, yeah, we had him cremated, and then we had his ashes for three years, and in a, and I remember thinking when we got went to collect the ashes, they were in kind of you know it wouldn't happen now probably, but where they were in like this polythene bag with one of those twisty tie things that oh you goodness. that you get with sandwich bags in the yeah, and I remember getting the ashes and thinking, gosh, is that all? Is, is that it? Do you know what I mean? Like it's like three tablespoonfuls or something, and um, but we had the ashes for three years and. Um, and then before I met his dad, he'd been to India a few times. He wasn't from India. He was he was um he was from England, but um he was Gaelic. He liked to say he was Gaelic because he was half Irish and half Welsh. Um but anyway, um and he'd been to India several times and um he he had a real affinity with India. And um, they have a place called the um, the River Ganges, which is in a, a holy river, which is um, in Benares. I think it's now called Varanasi. And um, and 
with the, with the intention was to um, scatter the ashes there. So that's what we did. So we went over three years later to India and uh, just us two. And um, we went up to Varanasi and we went, um, we wanted to have the um, ashes blessed. And um, <clears throat> so I remember us going to a place called Sarnef and we got in a boat and we went over to this Buddhist temple and um, a little old, you know, um, uh, a Buddhist um, guy came out and um, and he came out and we explained what we wanted to do. And they said, oh, it's the Buddha's birthday today. There's nobody here. Come back later. So I remember us having to go back later. And um, and when we went back later, we, they, we it was in like this big marquee, a huge marquee. And um, and there we were, and they all understood what we wanted to do, and they were really kind of excited, you know. And um, so we gave them this Western bag, you know, polythene bag, you know, and uh, they did this whole little ceremony of kind of um, ringing these bells and incense and putting the ashes, you know, the bag over incense and things. And uh, we were kind of, you know, again, just kind of really taken aback by it, and they were kind of you know, it wasn't sad. It was kind of really spiritual and, you know, poignant. And there was like ding and ling and ling with these little bells and everything. And then they gave us the ashes back and we got this boat back to um, back to the River Ganges. And then we went down towards the river and we explained to the, the, to the people there, um, into the gats, what we, what we wanted to do. And they suddenly went, oh, right. And then they put these flower garlands around our necks and we were like, oh, right, okay. And they, they were so happy. And then we got in this boat and somebody, you know, a man kind of was rowing the boat and off we went. And then we opened the bag and, you know, scattered the ashes and then came back and, yeah, that was that was an amazing yeah, kind of finish to it. You it know, a really special. Yeah, it really was special. Yeah, it really was special. And, um yeah, so that was it. And, you know, baby Shane now is, you know, as much as, you know, I wanted him back in those early days and a lot of, you know, bereaved parents who are listening to this will really understand that, you know, I, I so wanted him back, you know, I just wanted him back. And my rational mind knew, you know, that he wasn't going to come back. And But it takes time to realise that, you know, to understand that. You have stages of... Well, I did anyway, you know, had stages of, wow, this is it, you know. And I remember the first anniversary, the first year, and I remember the build up to it. <clears throat> and I remember thinking, and then the day came, you know, the 29th of May, a year later. And I, I thought, gosh, is that it? You know, I felt quite flat. And I don't know what I thought. It was as if he was going to come back or something, you know. And, um, and then another realization. Now, actually, you know, this is, you know, that that's it. You know, it's kind of um, he did doesn't come back. It's so final. It's so irreversible. Yeah, I mean, did you find that the build up was worse than the actual day? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And then so many parents say that, and I reflect that back to them. You know, often the build up is worse than the day. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because I don't know what you sort of think is going to happen, yeah, you know. Because you never, you never know, do you? How you're going to feel and how you're going to react. You don't. You don't. You know. And then you know, yeah. And he was actually born on my daughter's second birthday, the one that who had the heart surgery before. So, 
Um, so now, you know, well, I made a decision very early on that we would always let her have her second birthday and that we would think of him on the 29th of May. So my nan, bless her, she used to come come round, you know, on, on, on the birthday, well, all my children's birthday, but she used to come round on April the 8th um, when they were both born. And she used to bring, you know, my daughter, her presents. And then she'd bring a bunch of freesias, you know, those flowers that smell beautiful. And, um, you know, they're just, you know, you get them in small bunches, but they're quite expensive, but they smell, got this beautiful aroma. And she'd bring my daughter her presents and then she'd say, and they're for baby Shane, you know. So now, obviously, my nan's long gone, but now, you know, I always buy freesias. That's baby Shane's flowers. Do you know what I mean? So I don't just buy them on their birthday. I buy them, um, you know, whenever I see them in the supermarket or whatever, they're baby Shane's flowers. So, so I think, you know, over the years, you know, I don't, I, I, you know, it's 40 years and I can honestly say that I don't think of him every day and I don't feel guilty for that. I can remember the first time that it got to about 12 o'clock in the day and I thought my gosh I haven't thought about him you know in the early days when it was really and I felt so guilty and thinking gosh you know and it was like I had to kind of rewind the tape you know it was like putting a DVD in and then I had to rewind it and take myself through you know this did really happen you know because I didn't want to forget and um but I realized that that was me kind of adjusting you know it's not getting over you don't get it. And I think language is so important when you're talking to bereaved parents because you, you don't get over it. You know, you haven't been ill, you know, and grief isn't an illness. You know what I mean? But people tend to go, how are you now? You know what I mean? As if you're going to go, oh, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, it's all good. Yeah, I'm over it now. All fixed now. <laughs> yeah, all done. You know, it's not like that. You know, so if there is anyone listening who knows someone who's had a child or a baby die, you know, it's you know just ask them you know just acknowledge the the anniversary or or but and and understand that grief doesn't have an end you know and just let people know how you're coping since your baby died you know say the words you know they haven't passed away you have they haven't lost them do you know what I mean loss implies that you might find them again yeah. you know or that you've been careless you know use the words parents know that their babies have died and it's just you know in my role as um, of what I do, you know, the counselling and the support, it comes up time and time again, other people's reactions and how support can tend to fall away very, very quickly after, you know, after a funeral, after babies died, everyone else goes back to their, you know, their lives and everything. And, and that's when parents can feel really isolated and their babies, nobody mentions their baby's name anymore. They don't see their baby's name written down. And, People see you in Sainsbury's or see you laughing and think, oh, you're okay now, you know. And it's not that they're not okay, but they're living alongside it, you know, and it will always be there, you know. I agree. And it is um, is one of the reasons why I wanted to do the podcast as well, to... For other people who have experienced similar things, they, they can relate and listen. But it's also for friends and family that are trying to support as well, so they can get a better insight and mm. how to support people because there are little things that. You, you might be worried to tell them. You don't want to upset someone. Someone's trying to be nice to you, but you don't want to upset them to say, well, actually, I'd prefer if you didn't use that type of language. Or So, you know, things like, you know, have, how are you, are you okay now? Or are you okay yet? Well, that, it's, those no, things. that's not helpful because they're never going to be okay about, it's never okay that a baby dies or a child dies. It isn't. 
So it's just about saying, you know, or make a note of, of when the baby died and then put it in your diary so you recognize the anniversary, you know, and then a couple of days before you can go, you know, yeah, I can, you know, I'm just acknowledging that it's coming up to, you know, baby Shane's anniversary in a couple of days and maybe send a card, you know, send a text thinking of you, you know, if you don't know what to say, say, I'm really sorry, but I, I don't know what to say, but I'm here for you, you know. Do practical things, you know, take some food around. Take some dinner. Or, well. Yeah. And one thing, don't say, let me know if you need anything, because I'm telling you, bereaved parents do not normally know what they need. They don't know. They've not normally had this happen. So it's not like, let me know, do it. Do you know what I mean? Take some food around, um, you know, maybe send them a kind of subscription of Hello Fresh if you can afford it. Do you know what I mean? Or, or make, you know, just be proactive, isn't it, really, you know? It's, it's true. It's, it's so true. It really is. And you say, let me know if you need anything. Nine times out of ten, even if they do need something, even if they do know what they need, they're not going to let you know. They're not going to no. reach out to you. It's so no. hard to do that. It's, yeah. Just go and do it. You just go there and do it. Even if, I mean, I have friends when certain anniversaries, I might not know what to say, so I'll just text them a heart on exactly. or something. So they know that I'm thinking of them. They know why I've texted them. But yeah. I've not had to. I'm not had to say anything, but it still yeah. gives them some kind of comfort because I've acknowledged it and they know that, and I've remembered. Yes, exactly, and that's you know what parents. It just means so much to bereaved parents because you know nobody mentions baby Shane anymore. I mean, it has been forty years. I, I understand that. I might get an odd text, you know what I mean, or an odd something, you know, but or I might tell somebody, you know, it's come, you know. Often not more often not, I might say, and especially this year, you know, it's 40 years and I really feel that I should kind of celebrate that, you know, in a way, you know, because I feel that like I've had him hidden a little bit. Do you know what I mean? It's been 40 years. His anniversary comes and goes. I buy some freesias, um, you know, or just maybe sometimes I've driven around the cemetery, of, uh, the crematorium, but you know what I mean? Just to have a little bit of peace. But um but yeah, I mean, and I, I'm not upset by that. Do you know what I mean? That people, because it is 40 years, but um, but all my children know about baby Shane, you know, they know they, they've had a brother and I I, I had another um, baby after him three years later, another little boy. Okay. And, and thank God he was, he was fine. He didn't have a heart problem. And he knows that he, he had a brother, you know, before him. And he actually wrote a lovely poem about having a brother that died and you don't understand until you're five. And I can't remember the, the whole poem. But, um, you know, it's kind of like they are part of your family, you know, and always will be, you know. And so if anybody's out there, you know, that, you know, really understand that about bereaved parents and about a child that's died, that they'll always be part of that family. And, it's just that acknowledgement of, you know, like you said, just send them a heart or just that acknowledgement, you know, that um, that this has happened. It's huge. You know, I understand that people find it hard and if it hasn't happened to you. But, you know, particularly mums have said to me, you know, I feel like I've got a disease as if as if it's catching, you know, people avoid me. They cross the road. You see people at the school and, you know, and also you know, how to answer questions about how many children do you have, you oh, know. That is really difficult, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is, you know, and, so, and you've got to think on the spot, depending on who it is often, you know yeah. what I mean? Am I going to include him or am I, yeah. you know what I mean? You know, and it's kind of like, 
I mean, oftentimes I will say to people, yes, I've got three children because I have three living children. Or sometimes if I, you know, I think we're always busy trying to take care of other people, you know, aren't we as well, you know, as bereaved parents, you know, but other times I might say, yeah, I've got three children and I had a little boy as well, but he died, you know, after major heart surgery or, you know, just, or I might say I've got four children, you know, and not explain anymore. So many different answers, you know, but then sometimes you feel disloyal as well. Yes, you do. I I often find myself saying um, I've had four kids. If someone asks me, I always say, I've had four kids. Mm. Or, and then if I feel comfortable, I'll then go on to say, I've got three at home with me. Yes, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, 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 someone asked me the other week, how many kids have, how many kids do I have now? And um, I said three, because I've got, I've got three at home with me. And I said, and I felt so guilty yeah. afterwards for saying mm. that I had three. When I went, I, I then had to correct myself, I've got three at home. Yes. Um, because I felt so guilty missing him out. And I'll I'll always um, say, when people ask me, how many kids have you had? If someone asks me, how many kids have you had? I will always say, I've had four. But when they say, how many kids have you got? That's yes. when I speak, like, oh, how do I answer that? Yes, yeah, exactly. And and that's what comes up a lot, you know, with, with um, you know, clients and, and parents in the group and things about, you know, do I include them? Do I not? And, you know, then there's this kind of you wrestle with yourself, don't you? Like you say, and then you feel disloyal, or you feel guilty. And yeah, it's a difficult one. It's, you know, it's something that changes you as a person forever. And that's not in a negative way. But you do, <clears throat> excuse me, you do kind of, you know, look at your values and perhaps become less tolerant with, you know, you don't suffer fools so gladly and things after a bereavement because it does change your life and and you as a person and, and so it should actually yeah definitely definitely changed me I think um some people I mean I could be wrong but sometimes you think when you're a certain way I used to be I mean I'm not saying I'm not generous now but I was very generous before I'm not as generous now mm. I, reserve, I reserve more for myself now yeah it's, yeah I think it's a really good thing um, and I think, you know, I'm, so I'm a full promoter of that now. Your self-care is so important and you must be kind to yourself. Yes. I've learned, I've had to learn to take time for myself. Yes, absolutely. And and be patient. You know, if anyone's listening whose baby or child has died recently, you know, I'd say, you know, just be gentle and patient with yourself and give yourself permission to grieve. You know, often we think, oh, I'm, you know, must pull my pull myself together, you know, and put my makeup on and show a brave face to the world, you know. And, you know, and 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 also if you plan to do things, you know, you can change your mind and say, actually, I don't feel like that today. I've changed my mind. Or actually, I don't feel ready to go out for a meal with you or go out to the pub. I'd much rather us, you know, just go for, you know, a walk with one friend in the park. You know, that's another thing that I think people feel pressured into, you know, going back to normal. You know, we don't go back to normal. We adjust to a new normal, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's adjusting. It's not getting over. It's adjusting. And I think, you know, how we speak to ourselves is important as well, because it's kind of, you know, yeah. And it's not an illness. Grief isn't an illness, you know. And I think the Queen said, didn't she, you know, grief is all about love, you know. And, you know, the depth of love we feel is the depth of grief that we're going to feel, you know. So grief is the price we pay for love. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 
it, it, it is true. Can I ask Erica, how old was you? If you don't mind me asking, how old was you when you went through this? Uh, when I had baby Shane? Yeah. Uh, I think, oh, hold on a minute. Uh, so if I had him 40 years ago, I'm 65. You look so, amazing, by the way, oh, putting it out there. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, so um, how old was I, 25? Would I be 25 then, if 40 years ago? Yeah. yeah, I would be 25 when I had baby Shane, yeah. Yeah, I had my first daughter when I was 19, and then um, and then she's uh, 45, and then I had my next daughter, um, she's 42 this year, and then... Uh, baby Shane would be forty, and then my other my other son after Baby Shane is going to be thirty seven this year. Oh, okay. so, yeah. So that's my four children, and I've got eleven grandchildren as well. Oh wow! Yeah, and one great grandson as well. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. So, and I'm you know, you know, both my daughters sadly, you know, Louisa have had a baby that's died, you know, and oh, so we've had a you know grief in our family as as well as baby Shane and yeah my first daughter um her first baby died he had the same heart problem and they didn't know that it was a gene until then there was a genetics thing that the girls carry and the boys tend to get so my first her first um son and then um my first daughter had um Adam he died at three and a half um he had complex knees but he also had the heart problem and then my second daughter, you know, they won't mind me. You know, they know I'm doing this podcast. They won't mind me sharing with you. And my second daughter, uh, her first baby died at 20 weeks as well, and he had comp- he had the heart condition too. So, um, yeah, it's you know, and and again, you know, even though this is the work that I do, and I'm a bereaved parent myself, you know, being a bereaved bereaved grandparent, you know, and I support you know, we have grandparents coming to Ake in Arms and we did at Sands and things. Being a, a, a bereaved grandmother is really hard too because, you know, it's about trying to get the balance of being intrusive and support, you know, trying to get that balance, you know. And and plus you've got another layer because, you know, you can't take your son or daughter's pain away, yes, you know. I was thinking that when you were saying it, your yeah. instincts is to protect your child. Yeah. For your child to go through what you and you know yourself, yes, pain as well. Yes, so yeah, it must have been so difficult for yeah, you. Yeah, it is difficult. It, it was difficult, absolutely. It was, and just because you know I do this work and everything, it was still hard to kind of support them. And you know, and again, I just let them know that I was there. I just check in and you know, and make sure that they knew I was there, but. Um, yeah, it's hard. And and like you say, you know, you're supposed to protect your children, you know, when they fall over, when they're kids, you know, you pick them up, you put a plaster on their knee, you know, their shoelaces come undone, you do their shoelaces up, you know, their baby dies and you're helpless, you know, you, you just can't, yeah, you, you're just helpless. So, um, but, you know, it's just about, like I said, you know, being patient and gentle and, um, you know, and if there are any grandparents listening to this, who you know, who need support, you know, they can contact me through Aching Arms. Um, but um, yeah, it's, yeah, it, it's grief is a natural, you know, reaction to a, a major bereavement. And, and, you know, the death of a child or a baby is a major bereavement and needs to be acknowledged as one. It's not 
you know, particularly babies, it's not, oh, you can try again. You know, often early miscarriage, for example, is kind of dismissed as a medical condition. You know what I mean? It's kind of, you know, and I've, I, I've heard your story, you know, and it's kind of, oh, well, you can try again. You know, oh, you can have another one. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, just move on. You know, just like you, your car, you crash your car, you go and buy another one. And people don't understand, you know, as soon as they see that positive test, as soon as you see that, po- you're, it's the dreamed of future, you know, and it's not just the loss of that baby. It's the loss of all the plans you had in those moments. And so when a baby dies at any gestation, it is still, you know, it's still huge. And grief is so subjective. You know, some people might say who've had a miscarriage and then they might have had a stillbirth might say, oh, well, my miscarriage was nothing. Do you know what I mean? Compared to a later loss. But, you know, let them say that, you know, try not to judge people. You know, someone's had a miscarriage and it's a very much wanted baby, then that they will be grieving. You know, there's much the same as as any a later loss. But yes, it, 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 this topic comes up quite a lot when in in my podcast and and I often say there isn't a hierarchy we we put ourselves in a hierarchy but there isn't a hierarchy because everyone's situation is different and everyone's hard is hard I did it to myself once I lost Zion I dismissed my miscarriages yeah it's you know it's at the time I was devastated because I planned and had my future hopes and everything and I think as you know some people in the situation who could be trying for 10 years have an exactly. IVF and everything, and then they finally fall pregnant and lose the baby at six weeks. That would be just as heartbreaking as when I've lost Zion, you know. So, absolutely, we, yes. we don't know until we're in their, their shoes. We don't know, and if they're if if it's if they're upset, they're upset, and allow, and let them have that time, have that space. Which yes makes me. That's what I wanted to ask you actually. So, when your daughters went through what they went through. Did you allow yourself as a grandparent to have that space, have that time to grieve? Yes, I did. Yeah, I did. And again, but it's something that I didn't kind of rub in their faces, you know, because sometimes, you know, I've spoken to women on the phone who's, you know, or mums and dads on the phone who's, you know, their parents are grieving, you know, more. You know, I can't talk to my mum because she's so upset. Do you know what I mean? So it's kind of like that. And obviously, like I just said, you know, there is place they need that support. But yeah, I know I did allow myself to grieve, actually. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, But I had to, you know, kind of take a step back with that, you know what I mean? And kind of, you know, not do it so much. I mean, obviously, my daughters knew that, you know, that I was, you know, that it touched my heart that I was grieving as well. But it's kind of like just getting the measure of that and not kind of letting that kind of overwhelm them, my grief overwhelm them, you know. But, um, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a different world, you know. As I say to many parents that I speak to, you're in a world that you didn't know existed, you know. You didn't know this world existed. You've got no point of reference. And it's kind of like you wake up and you're kind of like, gosh, where am I? You know, it's like, gosh, is this a dream? Is this a nightmare? It's absolutely awful. But, you know, with support, you know, grief does settle. It does settle, you know, gradually, you know, and I'd say that even the first five years, I'd say is still very, a recent bereavement. You know, if someone says, oh, my baby died three years ago, you know, I say, well, that's still very recent for you, isn't it? You know, and it is, you know, it takes time to for it to settle, not to get over it, but to settle, which means that it can be 
unsettled. You know, your grief can be unsettled and, and you know, a wave of grief can be triggered by a smell, a song on the radio. When you're not looking, just anything. Sometimes you don't know, you know, why why you're going to ha- have a wave of grief, you know. But, um, yeah, so I think you just have to remember that. And some people think, oh, you know, oh, I've gone completely backwards. You know what I mean? I was doing all right, you know, the last few months. And then suddenly, you know, I'm having a really bad day and I've gone backwards. You know, try not to see it as you've gone backwards. You know, it's not, you know, you've gone back and reset and, you know what I mean? You've got to go you get through it again. You know, you're not trying to get anywhere. But sometimes, you know, yeah, you will have a wave of grief that hits you when you're not looking. And and just try to ride that wave. You know, sometimes the waves, I think that's a really good analogy of, of waves and the ocean, because sometimes the waves are, you know, overwhelming and very rough and very close together. And sometimes the waves are smoother and further apart, you know. And, yeah, we just have to try to allow that, I think, you know. And, you know, taking time of work as well. You know, sometimes, you know, if you broke your leg, you know, you'd you'd have time off work because you wouldn't be able to physically go into the office or whatever, or you know. But you know, people don't take time out for grief, really. You know, if it's coming up to your anniversary, maybe book some annual leave. You know, and and just think, right, I'm going to take some time out. You know, it doesn't matter how long ago it is. You know, it's just kind of, um, yeah, just really look after yourselves. That's really good. It's really good, and I feel like I feel like I needed to hear that right now. And I feel like there's gonna be lots of people that actually need to hear that. That yes, you do. You're you're so right to take time out. When you put it in that way, that if you broke your leg, you take time out. So why not take time for your soul? Because that's yes, a- exactly. If it's coming up to your anniversary of your baby dying or the due date, you know, a lot of people they have you know if the baby's born prematurely and died. There'd be a due date. There'd be all these significant dates. And or if you're just having a bad week and you're grieving, then just, you know, bereavement is a valid reason to be off work and you can get signed off for that. You know, so you don't have to have a law that passes that, you know, says that, you know, and if you can't take it off sick, then take annual leave. You know, there are if you can. I mean, I know it's difficult for people who are self-employed. But it's just about just allowing yourself, just being gentle, like I say, with yourself and thinking, no, actually, I'm going to take some time off. You know, I'm going to have some baby shame time today. I'm going to light at that candle. 